Everybody here uh, just Shannon, so as to you show that Ballots, They're dropping that wooden box. You can see, as you mentioned, pretty simple, straightforward process underway here. There are five voters in Dixon. So all five are expecting to contest. Their ballots here in the moment, some of them already have. A process that they're very proud of. It dates back to 1960 when Neil Tillotson's father began the tradition here. There you have Tom okay, Tolson so announcing the count and 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 the count count and the count the count and 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 the count there is a table covered with red, white, and blue bunting, a podium, two closet-sized voting booths, five voters, 30 journalists, four TV trucks, two cakes, celebrating the 60th anniversary of the midnight voting at Dixville Notch, New Hampshire. Now, you may think this a departure from our usual travel subjects, and as we continue to release episodes that the trip recorded just before this pandemic hit, I wanted to still include these episodes from New Hampshire. For me, the performative small-town democracy of New Hampshire's presidential primaries is actually just right for a drinking and travel podcast. My friend, the photographer Shane Carpenter, and I were first dragged up here to Dixville Notch 16 years ago by a hard-drinking, fringe presidential candidate named Dick Bosa, the former mayor of Berlin, New Hampshire. Mayor Bosa was behind on child support and dying of cancer while he ran angrily for president, and he drove that night like a man with very little to live for, shotgunning beers at the wheel, careening through the North Country with Shane and I, white-knuckled in the car next to him. When he opened the driver's side door in the grand driveway of the Balsams Resort, empty beer cans came tumbling out, clanging on the asphalt. He was on the presidential ballot that night, but he had one major obstacle. Every voter was also a resort employee, and Bosa had a long history of treating the help very poorly. He's an asshole, the guy at the desk assured me, and poor Mayor Bosa got no votes for president that night. Shane and I have been back to New Hampshire every four years since, always following the lesser candidates, the dreamers and the hard schemers who try like hell to grab votes from people you've actually heard of. And we went back in 2020 also, when COVID was already raging in Wuhan, but still felt very, very far from the United States. Tonight, we start with Tom Tillotson, his famous father, the industrialist Neil Tillotson, the guy who saw Teddy Roosevelt campaign, who rode against Pancho Villa in Pershing's cavalry, who earned his fortune by inventing the latex balloon and latex medical glove, well, his son is carrying on one of that father's traditions, this midnight voting in Dixville Notch. Tom and I drank from, of all things, a clay bottle of excellent Chinese baiju, and we toasted Wuhan and our own cranky democracy alike. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you are listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. This will be a, a great mental exercise, maybe even a Zen exercise of, of sort of uh, immersing in a conversation when you know there are 
30 people out there, all of whom want a piece of you. Start with this or end with this? I believe that we should start with this. This is a brand new bottle of Koicha. I thought this one had already been opened, so it was a bit of a process to get these things open. Uh, but this is, a great, uh, this is a great honor then that we get to dig into a brand new bottle. And this is not the Koicho Motai that I'm used to. This Baijiu is Daoguang 25 Manchu Liquor Making Company. Daoguang, okay. Oh, you aren't kidding. This is like a ceremonial opening process. You've got a little briefcase, like a little gold-colored plastic briefcase that you've taken out. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what exactly this does. <laughs> and a corkscrew. I mean, it's a beautiful jar. We've got a clay jar and got it. We have to break it open like a, it's like a terracotta warrior's side liquor. Uh, oh, this is a lighter. Oh. <laughs> this is amazing. This is like an entire, an entire evening's festivities in one uh, Dogong uh, Motai bottle. There you go. You break the... Ah, look at that. Okay. I knew you had to break something. Poor. Tom, I have taken this drinking podcast all over the world this clay bottle of motai uh, is, uh, or baijo, is like a very special bottle, I can tell already. It is. I mean, that's <clears throat> the really good ones, you have to break it to get open. <laughs> right? It's, it's just, uh, like, just like we did here. A level of commitment. Yeah, there's a level of commitment there. Um, well, shall we uh, toast to Dixville Notch and the Midnight Vote? Kambe. Kambe. Wow, that's smooth. That is really, that is excellent. Mm. I mean, listen, this bottle I have at home, the Kuecho Motai, is like the People's Liberation Army's favorite <laughs> gift. It's like $150. That's smoother, what you just gave me here, than the stuff that I have at home. Amazing. So, all right, so here we are. We're um, perilously close to, uh, to this first vote that you're going to have. That is midnight voting, and it's 7.45 p.m., we just had some Kuecho. I am going to run through the million questions that I have and try to organize them quickly. We're here because of your father. So let's mm -hmm. just start with him. He had this much larger than life existence. What's your favorite story about your father that kind of, to you, epitomizes this kind of, uh, this massive life that he led? I didn't grow up with my father. I basically got to know him after I got out of the Army and went to work for him. Um, and so we had a, uh, a typical father-son competitive relationship. <laughs> um, but I learned so much from him. I remember a, an incident when I was, I was fresh and young and eager beaver, just started working and was here at the, at the, at the property. And uh, there was something going on in, on the property that I was bothered about, and I went in to see him and said, Raul's doing, I forget what it was, but he's doing such and such, and, you know, there's a, <clears throat> this is going to be a real problem. And he looked at me and he said, okay, um, you brought me a problem, now what's the solution? And kind of stopped me and said, well, 
<laughs> You've only brought one thing yeah, into I mean, the room. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's, it was like, you know, he's, he's right. I mean, I, why should I come in here and just bring a problem without bringing a solution to that, he, you know, if it needed his permission or something like that to, to get it done. But just to take the problem in and throw it on his uh, was a very important lifelong lesson for me in terms of how I became a boss and, you know, took over the company and, and had, you know, a time up to 1,500 employees. And I always remember that lesson in terms of uh, how you deal with, um, and when somebody would come to me, I would basically say the same thing and we would work out whatever the relationship was. So that's the kind of man he was. I mean, he was a very um, soft-spoken, um, but very rational person. Um, he would love to argue. Um, basically, if you went in to have a discussion or anything, whatever your position was, he would take the opposite position. It may not be what he believed in, but he would take the opposite position, and through the process of going back and forth with um, the two different sides, the discussion would inevitably lead to probably some solution to whatever, whatever it was we were discussing, or a better outcome than had either one of us made the decision on our own based on our own feelings of what, what to do. Um, kind of a lesson that this country's lost. <laughs> That ability to just like kind of argue through to reach right. a, a you know, middle point, and, and you know, not animo no animosity, just uh, get so let's get all the ideas out there, let's talk about them, and uh, see what see what fits, whatever survives. So talking about the legacy of the company as you took it over, uh, let's get straight to why we're drinking by Joe here. China <laughs> China became a part of the company's profile. <clears throat> Was that an initiative from you, or was he already kind of working on partnering up over there? No, that was um, <clears throat> after I took over the, the, the glove business. I, I basically took over the medical device business in the 90s. These would be the latex gloves. Latex and... gloves, wound care, mm -hmm. uh, but primarily latex gloves. Um, after I built that business up, we started um, buying gloves that we didn't produce, particularly nitro, um, not nitro, but vinyl gloves mm -hmm. that uh, were mostly all made in China, is still the world's largest producer of vinyl gloves. So I basically started going over there in the late 90s just as a... As a in the late 90s, so not, not all that long ago. No, not, not all that long ago. I think 98 was my first trip. Um, and then when I sold the company in 2003... Um, Part of that sale was that uh, I sold one of my factories, it was the machinery in one of the factories, to a Chinese glove company. And uh, reminiscent of what's going on with the coronavirus today, back this was right at the start of the SARS epidemic. In uh, I remember I was I was in Asia at that time in yeah. 2003, right in March. Well, here I'd sold these machines, and I had a couple of engineers that had worked for me that were getting ready to go over there and set up these machines and teach the uh, the company how to how to use them and make gloves. And that's when SARS happened, and they came to me one day and said, mm, "Our wives don't want us going to China at this point." Mm -hmm. And so they backed out, and I said. Oh, I guess foolishly, whatever I said, out okay, I'll go and I'll do it. And so I went in 2004 to 
<clears throat> basically set up and set up this factory over there. That led to a number of other things. I set up, I took another operation that I had and, and did a joint venture with that company. And that led to other things. I started um, meeting people and I met a Chinese scientist that wanted to start a drug research company. Um, that was in 2005, no, 2006. So you really just kept seeing all these cascading yeah, I mean, opportunities. It, 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 you go someplace, you get involved, and you know if you've got your eyes open and you're adventurous, I guess at least then things open up for you. Right? And, and it did seem to me that it kind of went beyond a you know just a classic manufacturing partnership because as we were emailing in the approach to me coming up here, you were saying that you you really felt for the coronavirus and what they're going through now, and you're serving by Joe, and you have also been involved in the ski industry there. It's like feels like you're, you know, the the softer side side of that relationship is what's appealed to you after. When I started going to China, I quickly realized two things: one, that you need to speak Chinese, and two, that the Chinese people are wonderful people, and that kind of has led me through the process. That you know, after, once I started going to China, I was basically commuting once a month for almost nine years. My goodness. Um, okay. And, uh, the so I, I I became very involved. One of the things that I did when I started was prior to that I'd spent 13 years with manufacturing in Southeast Asia. I had plants in Malaysia and Thailand, um, and in that life, I would four times a year I would get on a plane, go over there, have dinner after dinner after meeting after meeting, get on a plane and come home. And you know when I started going to China and kind of thought, well, this is a lot bigger, and there's a lot more here than just what I was exposed to in Southeast Asia. I said, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to come over here, I'll spend a week working, and then I'll spend a week traveling. And I did that for about the first four or five years, basically splitting my time between travel and, and uh, in that travel part, because well, as you see here, we're in, <laughs> we're in the middle of we're, we're skiers here. This is um, legit ski I, country. I ran into someone who said, hey, you know, they're skiing here. And um, okay, let's go see what it's all about, which we did. And uh, started getting involved with the ski industry over there in 2006. And since I have a, I have the only English language website that tells people what the ski industry is like over there. Yeah, and how to how to how to navigate it where how the good mountains. How to navigate, mountains. which yeah. is not easy. <laughs> yeah, I imagine it's one of those things that uh, is a long tail project for them. Let's break to take a moment to talk about Baiju. I could tell you that Baiju is Chinese distilled alcohol, usually made from sorghum, high proof, classified according to the strength of its aromas, and there are some very funky aromas, and then drunk neat in tiny glasses shot after pungent shot. This stuff sells over 10 billion liters a year. That makes it the most valuable liquor on earth more than rum or vodka or whiskey or anything you might know better. It is also a deeply acquired taste. The bottle that I got from that colonel in the People's Liberation Army in Nanjing a while ago is still half full in my cabinet. Every once in a while, I make an uninitiated house guest try some and then just watch their face. 
The writer Mitch Moxley wrote a fine piece that I'll link to in the show notes about Baiju's robust attempts to break into the U.S. cocktail market. But I don't think we are strong enough just yet. Our faces, and this I know, can't handle that much flavor. Not yet. Now back to Tom. Well, let's pivot back to here where we are. Tell me, tell me what the balsams is for those who don't know. Well, first of all, you, before you understand the balsams, you need to understand Dixville Notch. Dixville Notch is physically a notch in, in for any West Coast listeners who call them passes or, or I guess there's other terms. But in the, the places where you can travel east and west in the mountains are called notches in, in right. the east. So Snoqualmie Notch, Donner Notch. Right, <laughs> That's right. what it would be on the West Coast. But here... Right. So, yeah. he, so, so here... Dixville is Dixville Notch is a small little place with a lake that sits on top of this mountain that's the Notch East-West Road going at this part of the state. Um, as such, 150 years ago, some people had the idea to start an inn here. Um, that was, I guess, a, a successful inn, but. Uh, it burned down a couple times. They rebuilt it. Um, it kind of grew organically for uh, 30, 40 years. And then about 100 years ago, a gentleman by the name of uh, Henry Hale decided he liked it, and he was going to invest his fortune here, building it into a uh, what would then be considered a world-class resort. And we are in the Hale House now. We are in the Hale House. This was his private residence. Hmm. Um, built about the same time, about 100 years ago. And uh, he took this small little inn operation, put in uh, a canal, including a, you know, a tunnel through a mountain to bring water into building lakes in the, in here, the lake out front. There wasn't a lake before him. Wow, okay. Um, but built the lakes, uh, built golf courses, had Donald Ross come and build a very famous, you know, uh, golf course, um, built the first and tallest um, steel and, and concrete building north of Boston. Um, and was one, actually, because of the history of these old New England resorts all burning, because they were all wood frame buildings, uh, he built this out of um, uh, brick and steel. It was the first uh, fireproof hotel built in New England. Huh. Um, it was actually a, an exhibit in the World's Fair in, I think, 1920 or something like that, 18 or 20. Okay. Um, so anyway, um, there's a kind of a mishmash of architecture from, of, of different styles that sort of grew over the years, but it, it's a 238-35-room um, Victorian-slash-neoclassical architecture hotel. Um, when did your father get involved? He came and bought it at some point from Hale. Um, well, Henry Hale bowed out um, fairly soon, not that long after uh -huh. he, uh, you know, the, the stock market crash. Um, it went through a series of owners after after Hale left. Um, well, he didn't leave. He just, I think, I think he, he passed away, and mm. his family was still here. But the hotel took on and. Uh, different lives under different uh, ownerships. And that continued for uh, three or four different owners 
until the 1950s when the world changed. These old hotels were built on the premise that rich people um, from the cities would want to come spend a place, spend their summers, two, two, three weeks to the whole summer up in the mountains just taking in the good air or whatever. And uh, that was the tradition back in uh, that the New England inns were all built on. Um, after the war, the highway system was built in, uh, was built up, um, and the American public just changed. Uh, instead of these long vacation type you know, things for the wealthy, uh, the business model became um, motels and things that you could do on the highway. For a, a middle class that was on the go. For a middle, you're right. Yeah. For a, a growing middle class that was you know, the, looking for something different. And uh, uh, as you probably surmise from your drive up here, we're not exactly on the beaten path. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is true. Just off the freeway here. And uh, <clears throat> so the hotel was having tough times after the war. Um, the owner that had it basically was failing and it was up for a tax auction. Um, <clears throat> my father was born 18 miles from here and to, to him when he was growing up this was the place where the rich people came huh. and you know had no interest in the local people at all uh, either employing them or having them as guests and so he had kind of like you know a chip on his shoulder for uh, the, the, the property and and this was a chance for him to arrive back in the, the elite yeah, of his there was, childhood. You know, he, he would deny that, but not, not vehemently. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, you know, a number of people that he knew here got together and kind of, you know, Neil, you need, to, you need to think about doing this. And he resisted for a while. I don't know anything about running a hotel. Um, you know, I, I run rubber factory. Um, and, uh, but they, they, they prevailed and persisted, and I, I guess the final thing was they introduced him to Captain Dodera. Captain Dodera was a uh, ex-New York City police chief that owned the hotel in the 30s, a very flamboyant guy. He was very successful here, um, and uh, he met up with Dad, and they decided that uh, they would go in together and buy it because he would. He wanted to come back. He was in. He was living in Palm Beach raising Brahma bulls at the time. <laughs> as, um, as one does. <laughs> as one does in so, Palm Beach. Right. So he was ready to come back and try it. Right. Um, and so they, they did. They bought it. And as he told me later on, he figured, well, you know, I don't know if it's going to make it as a hotel, but I can always convert it to a factory. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was your father's uh, right. thought about that was, it. That's that was his, uh, you can always go back to what I know how to do. Another aside here. The vote at Dixville Notch almost didn't happen this time. The previous election I had been here, there had been a fully operating resort with as many as two dozen voters who were on staff here. Coming up the main drive was like pulling your vehicle into a twinkling hotel scene from a Wes Anderson movie. Driving up in the dark this time, though, was more Kubrick than anything. The Balsams is abandoned. It has been for years. That tall hotel tower lays completely dark now against the snow-covered mountains, and some of the outbuildings are collapsing into the snow. Here's Tom Tillotson talking about how the midnight voting got started 60 years ago 
and how it managed to stay alive for at least one more election. Now, the reason I've been here three times in my life uh, as a uh, very post-war American is because uh, of the midnight voting, which mm -hmm. has become uh, this kind of great tradition of very, very lowercase d democracy um, with small groups uh, for a midnight vote for the first in the nation primary. It started with your father back in when Nixon uh, ran. Was it a marketing ploy? Was it uh, an act of inspired democracy? Was it both? Uh, much more humble than that. <laughs> I mean, in 1960, he, he bought the hotel in 54. Um, Captain Dodera ran it for a while, and then then he kind of ran out of steam. He was he was elderly by that time and had some health issues, had lung cancer, and so he dad decided he needed to come back here, and he moved back. He moved his he moved back up here and, and started living here. Uh, 1960 elections were coming along, and uh, he realized that if he wanted to vote, he was going to have to drive an hour down to Berlin or someplace to be able to vote. Um, as the story goes, I was not here to vouch for it, but as the story goes, he at some point in this process of thinking met up with a uh, reporter, a wire service reporter for AP. And the AP reporter told him about the midnight voting tradition, which had been going on since the 30s. In various towns in, in around various, here. In other yeah. towns. Um, no town was kind of doing it all the time, but there was always somebody doing it. And so uh, he, the AP guy told him about the process, and Dad said, oh, that, that sounds like a good idea. Um, I don't have to, I can vote right here in my house. <laughs> and you had phones and rooms. And so we had the hotel, because of the hotel, we had the, we had the way, all the facilities that made it easier for the press to work. So, um, that got it started and it's continued for 60 years. Now you have had, I, I would be safe to say that this time you've had to fight harder than ever. To, to, to have it actually happen this evening. The fact that it's happening is a triumph, right? <clears throat> Because um, the hotel is shut down, you're you're in redevelopment phase. You're trying to sell it as real estate, uh, as a as a development property, um, and it 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 brings up questions like who's here to vote and how do you get a quorum? How did it? How did how did you make it work this time? Well, last fall, we had a uh, the one of the voters that was living here working on the development project decided he wanted to travel for a year, so. Ultimately, last fall, he said, told us that he was going to go to South America and live for a while. And uh, it doesn't quite work with the voting. <laughs> so that is he, true. Uh, <clears throat> he resigned as a, uh, uh, as a Dixville voter, and that brought us down to four, four people. With four people, there, we talked with the Attorney General's office, and, well, you can't do it with four people. There needs to be a minimum number of election officials and... Um, the, the rules and laws governing that are somewhat Byzantine, but anyway, they worked through and sorted it out and said, you need five people. You gotta have, you're going to have to find one more person if you want to hold it. And that was uh, November-ish or so of last year. And uh, Les, the developer, Les Otten, the developer here, had... You know, bought, he, he had bought the property and he owns his house and stuff. And, 
um, I suggested to him, you know, Les, if you're getting close to your project, getting off and I mean, he had always planned on moving here and living, you know, making this his home once the project got going. And I said, well, Les, you know, if you're if you're getting close, maybe you want to think about moving up your time to, time schedule a little bit. And now is the time. He thought about it and finally decided to do it. So here we are. Les Otten is the fifth voter. Right. There's going to be five votes cast tonight. That's correct. Why is it important to you to have this here? The midnight voting is important in itself for the, I think, for the state. Without midnight voting, is midnight voting becomes the starting gun for the whole uh, presidential election process. And what's a race without a starting gun? And it also is something early in the morning that tells people that, you know, here's a bunch of people up in the mountains that have gotten out of bed at midnight to vote. And, gee, you down in Manchester, all you got to do is drive your car two blocks and maybe you can vote too. And so maybe shame some people into voting or encourage some people to vote. But get the message out that, you know, this is a, our, our democracy depends on participation. You're, five people often have been, in, as the case with your father's first vote, employees of one of the voters. It's not, uh, it's a very close-knit group and probably not a, a grand democracy in that sense. How seriously should people take the results that come out from the five votes in terms of oh, bellwether? Um, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> it's just the act of doing it. Right. It's, 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 it's the starting gun. It's the act. It's the 100% participation. Those are the important messages. You know, we've been all over the board in terms of being right and being wrong. Um, so it, it's uh, whatever happens here tonight is not going to determine the election. And what of those results? Well, as Tom says, Dixville Notch is not a bellwether. And don't just take it from him. A Nate Silver analysis proved that back in 2008. And so it was in 2020 as well. Michael Bloomberg won both the Republican and Democratic ballot at midnight with one GOP write-in vote and two Democrat write-ins. Sanders and Buttigieg got a vote each. In a midnight voting tradition that began with a wealthy industrialist and his employees voting unanimously for Nixon, it seems fitting that the billionaire should win the night, It was the opening bell for the real fight of 2020 and beyond. Billionaires versus the rest of us. The real success of the night, though, is that they pulled it off at all. And now to the last part of our conversation, picking up with how they needed every voter in order to keep the midnight voting tradition alive. But 100% participation is absolutely mandatory. I mean, you've had to haul people drunk and get them sobered up and come out and vote in the past, <laughs> Unfortunately, <right>? that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, now Les looked in great shape. I haven't seen the other three voters. Uh, 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 aside from this illegal, that's why we had to close the door. We're, we Essentially, this, it, it's like a party atmosphere out there, but without any... <laughs> That's right. You should not be drinking alcohol right. in a polling place. That's we uh, we are very privileged to be uh, on this on the well, slight is, hand. I, this room is essentially out of the polling place. So okay, we're, good. We're, we're officially right. okay. We are officially okay. <laughs> well, with that, we've reached our thirty minutes. Uh, you are busy enough that I, I don't want to push your time. I can't thank you enough for this incredible alcohol for hosting over the years that oh, I've been here. This was so good that you know I think we need to have at least one more little sip. Tom, I. I'm so with you on that. I vote yes. 
<laughs> and 100% participation. Well, cheers to you, Tom Tillotson. Thank yep. you so much for being on the show. And, and to all the people in suffering with the coronavirus thing now, here's to you too. Here's to you, amen. The trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Alexa Van Sickle is our producer. Theme music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Sound mastering and composing by Ricardo Gutierrez. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Next week, it's Probiotic Smoothies with Gary Hirschberg, a giant in the organic movement, chairman of Stonyfield Yogurt, lifelong New Hampshireite, and early and enthusiastic supporter of Democratic candidates throughout. We will meet you there.